welcome to our continuing educational webinar series. I'm Catherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager for First Healthcare Compliance. At First Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business, a hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. We are so pleased to have Melody W. Malike, MSHS, President of Revenue Cycle Coding Strategies, LLC. She's a frequent speaker and author for nationally recognized professional organizations and publications. Melody's areas of expertise include coding and compliance, management engineering, and operations improvement, and she's nationally recognized for her extensive compliance expertise. Melody often speaks at national conferences on topics including interventional and diagnostic radiology coding, internal audit program development, coding compliance, and other healthcare compliance issues. Recent speaking engagements include the Association of Community Cancer Centers, AHRA, the Association for Imaging Management, Radiology Business Management Association, RBMA, Healthcare Billing Management Association, HBMA, the Radiological Society of North America, RSNA, and Melody is the AHRA liaison to the American College of Radiology Economics Commission. Melody is a frequent author for national publications and writes the bi-monthly coding column for AHRA Radiology Management and the HBMA Billing. Her work has also appeared in RT Imaging Economics, Radiology Today, and Radiology Business Journal. Melody co-authored Revenue Cycle Coding Strategies Coding Guide for Diagnostic Radiology and Interventional Radiology. Prior to her current position, Melody held the position of Vice President for Billing Compliance for the largest national billing company, where she was responsible for the implementation, oversight, and maintenance of the billing compliance program. Melody holds a Master of Science in Health Systems degree and a Bachelor of Industrial Engineering degree, both from Georgia Institute of Technology, Georgia Tech in Atlanta. She also holds the professional certification of Certified Radiology Administrator, cer Certified Professional Coder, Certified Professional Col Coder Hospital, and Radiology Certified Coder. Melody has achieved fellow status with the AHRA and is a recent recipient of the prestigious AHRA Gold Award for her organizational and industry contributions. Before we begin, I would like to mention at First Healthcare Compliance, we strive to serve as a trusted resource for compliance professionals and celebrate their hard work and dedication with our Compliance Super Ninja recognition. Here we are spotlighting Super Ninja Sharon Miller, Administrator at Gulf Coast Dermatopathology Laboratory. Sharon says patient care is paramount and by creating a culture of caring and compassion and respect, we have succeeded in all that we do. We try to promote a family atmosphere in which we turn, which in turn translates to ultimate patient care. Congratulations, Sharon. Our team is honored to have the privilege of working with you. 
A copy of the slides is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions into the question box on your control panel during the presentation. We will address questions at the conclusion of the presentation. Your PACOM and PMI CEU certificates will be emailed to you following the broadcast. Your PACOM certificate will come directly from PACOM and your PMI certificate will come from our email. There is no need to re request either one. Additional CEU opportunities will be available to BC Advantage members following the broadcast. See their website for details. So Melody, a very, very warm welcome. Thank you so much for being here with us today and presenting on this very important topic. Thanks, Catherine. Always appreciate the opportunity to be here at First Healthcare Compliance. So there's so many different things when we think about compliance. There's current issues that we deal with, and then there's issues that we're preparing for for the future, especially when there's big changes that are coming. And appropriate use criteria is one of these things that we've been talking about, it feels like, for years, because frankly, it has been for years, but it's not going away. And so we appropriately titled this session, It's Delayed But Not Gone, even though we recognize that there are probably Probably a lot of people that would like to see AUC go away um, and we'll talk about why that may or may not happen in the process but we have received yet another delay but I would definitely argue to not use this time period to forget about it or to ignore it but rather to use this time to be better prepared so that when the penalty phase does arrive when it will someday um, that we are adequately prepared and we don't have any issues for it so talking about appropriate use criteria. So what we're going to talk about in our time together today is really helping you to identify what are the specific areas of concern that you might have. Now, I would say the majority of you are going to be in a position where you as providers or the providers that you work for are actually going to be ordering these advanced imaging studies. So you're going to be in that position of having to order studies and provide information to uh, a radiology practice or to an imaging uh, department, hospital, etc. But many of you may be in a position where you actually own equipment, you own CTs and MRs and things like that. And so it's impacting you from an ordering and a performing standpoint. So everybody's perspective is a little bit different figure out which bucket you're in for that. We also want to really look at it to make sure that you have the information that you need to facilitate those discussions, regardless of what practice setting you're in, whether you are employed providers, again, whether you're hospital-based, whether a lot of different categories, right, from that standpoint, and then really design those actions that you can take to facilitate a successful implementation, because we want to make sure that there's no short-term or long-term effects um, as we work through something as big as AUC implementation. So for an agenda today, we're going to do a little bit on the background. Again, AUC has been a topic of conversation for many years, but I do want to make sure we're on the same playing ground in terms of what we're talking about. Talk about what do we know and what do we not know. So I really kind of call that our current known and unknowns and our questions with it. And then highlight some of the implementation challenges that we have. And those implementation challenges do vary, again, based on your perspective. Are you an ordering provider? Are you, you know, from the ED? Or are you from, you know, cardiology, orthopedics, oncology? The list goes on for that. And then what are some measurement and metrics that organizations should put in place to have visibility to what the, the results of those consultations are? And then really, what are next steps? What are the things that we really want to look at as we're going to implement AUC to ensure that we're doing that accurately. 
So, you know, briefly from a background standpoint, what is appropriate use criteria? This goes all the way back to 2014. It was introduced in the Protecting, to, Protecting the Access to Medicare Act, so PAMA. I think in healthcare, we have more abbreviations probably than just about any other industry except maybe the military. But we, so this goes back again to 2014, Protecting Access to Medicare Act. That's important because it was something that was passed by Congress. So this is literally something that would take an act of Congress to change. CMS is responsible for implementing it, but they didn't actually create the program itself. So again, they get to implement it, they didn't get to create it. That explains why they don't get to change a lot about it either. When something is passed into law, you really can't change the law unless the people that wrote it to begin with make those changes. So again, to make a pretty substantial change, there would have to be Congress intervention to make that happen. So this goes back to when an ordering provider is ordering an advanced imaging study, CT, MR, nuclear medicine, including PET scans, they have to, this is for Medicare only, but they have to consult appropriate use criteria with that to give them information regarding whether or not it's considered to be the most appropriate exam for, those, for that patient's signs or symptoms or for their presenting conditions. Again, we know that really ordering providers don't necessarily like the fact that you really have to jump through this hoop to do it. But again, this is the regulation out of the gate specifically for it. When we talk about what is appropriate use criteria, well, appropriate use criteria is content that's developed by what CMS de deems as qualified provider-led entities. So again, another abbreviation, or PLEs, they have not updated the list since June of 2019. Um, but when you look at the organizations on the list, you see a lot of societies, you see a lot of colleges, American College of Radiology, American College of Cardiology, et cetera, uh, National Comprehensive Cancer Network, again, a lot of very well-known, well-respected organizations, as well as some of our provider uh, organizations as well, such as MD Anderson, uh, University of Washington School of Medicine, or WashU, uh, again, Cornell, very esteemed organizations that went through a process to get on medical Care's list for it. So any, any organization or, or rather mechanism, a way that we access this information, these are the only entities that can create the content that providers actually access uh, as part of that particular process. But you can go to CMS's website and you can see their listing of provider-led entities. So the, the requirement is that an ordering provider has to consult this appropriate use criteria through a mechanism, and they call it a CDSM, a clinical decision support mechanism with that. Even if you're going to be billing for the professional, the technical component, you still have to go through that. So again, thinking about the type of, of specialty or the type of organization. We know a lot of orthopedics own MRI machines now. You may have a neurologist with an MRI machine. Um, oncologists, you know, have PET scans. I mean, the list kind of goes on with that. Uh, again, even if you're going to be billing the interpretation or billing the technical component, you still have to go through that consultation process. Now, the mechanism itself, most times it's actually embedded into the electronic health record of an organization. So if you're at a, a hospital-based type setting, an EPIC and Cerner, that's embedded into there as a general rule, but it's also embedded into a lot of the physician uh, uh, EHRs as well with that. So long list for it. Um, I'm going to be vendor neutral on all of that, but it doesn't really matter, but most of them have that ability to do it. That said, there does have to be a free web-based system 
available to people. And so with that free web tool, there's ways to do it without actually having to build the systems to go along with it. If you're doing it built within a system, there's a lot of different things there to make it easier. I know as time continues to march on, we even see artificial intelligence making its way into AUC consultation, which makes life a little bit easier. So when you think about AUC consultation, there's a lot of variation out there. It's not all one way. It's going to be very dependent upon the systems themselves, how easy that process is or is not to do. So as far as the mechanisms themselves, there's G codes out there. Um, the only one I have missing from the list is RadWrite, which is G1011. That's the latest addition um, to that. But there's a, a listing of several mechanisms out there. And just like we saw with the provider-led entities, the mechanisms themselves also have to be approved by Medicare uh, to be on the list. So you, know, you and I couldn't just get together and say, hey, we're gonna create a mechanism and just pop it out to the market. We'd have to go through the approval process to get on Medicare's list specifically for that. Once they get on the list, they assign them a G code as well because that's going to become very important to communicate which mechanism was actually consulted when they go through that particular process. So again, I'm gonna be a vendor neutral with it. Um, I will point out that probably the most prevalently found mechanism in the industry is that National Decision Support Care Select, G1004. A lot of the hospitals tend to use that one. That has a lot of integration into the other. Again, um, not any negative towards any other system, just pointing out that that's probably the one that you'll see with the greatest amount of frequency for it. So what is the, requir the requirement? Well, the requirement is that the AUC must just be consulted. So out of the gate, it's in essence, it's really just checking a box. I mean, was it consulted? When you go to use appropriate use criteria, not, uh, you know, all the systems are a little bit different, but most of them are going to give you information and it'll include ultrasound, even though that's not a requirement, but it may give you information that says, you know, ultrasound may be the best exam or it may be CT or it may be MR and it's going to score it. And it's going to say, you know, with that, based on that patient signs or symptoms, this is what is recommended as the best imaging modality for it. And so it's basically gonna give that green, yellow, or red score with it. No specialists are exempt. So even though you could look at it and say, well, of course, a neurosurgeon is going to know when to order a, you know, a CT of the brain or you know, something like that, doesn't matter. Even, even radiologists are not exempt. So if we have interventional radiologists who are ordering studies as well, um, they're not exempt as part of that process as well. There are certain exceptions that do exist. So it does not apply to inpatients. So CMS does not require it for inpatients, though we do see that some hospitals have actually implemented appropriate use criteria for inpatients, primarily because when you think about Medicare patients and DRG payments on the hospital side, they're getting a flat rate uh, for a patient's stay with that, and they wanna make sure that that's appropriately balanced from a financial standpoint. So sometimes they will do it to ensure that if CTs or MRs are being ordered on inpatients, that it is appropriate for that. Certain emergency studies are exempt. Translation means the entire ED is not exempt. And actually they, they being CMS even reinforced that in the 2022 Medicare Physician Fee Schedule Final Rule to make it very clear that the ED across the board is not exempt. Only non-emergent or potentially non-emergent cases are exempt. So they follow the MTALA guidelines, which goes back to our late 80s, early 90s, that says if a patient could potentially have a medical emer emergency medical condition, that you cannot turn them away. So that's the guidelines that follow. And of course, you know, I've talked to ED physicians and they say, well, you know, everything that comes in potentially is an ED. 
uh, is, is an emergency. And I said, okay, well, if you're willing to commit and say and sign right here that every single time a patient comes in, that it could be an emergency, that, that I can make that argument for you. And I haven't had anybody take me up on that yet because they know the reality is there are patients that will use the ED for non-emergent reasons and, and reasons that we can't make the argument to be able to bypass that. So if it truly is or could be an emergency, we bypass those. We don't have to do the consultation on them, uh, but everything else they technically have to. And there's also some hardship exceptions that are out there. And I'll talk a few, a little bit about that in just a few more minutes with it. But there are no hardship uh, for furnishing professionals, meaning imaging centers, uh, you know, related to that. That's something that is is built into it with it. Um, critical access hospitals are exempt though. Then the reason they're exempt is they're not paid through the Medicare physician fee schedule or through the outpatient perspective payment system. That is, so it's a different payment methodology that they have. So therefore they're exempt for that. Um, observation patients are included and it's required for them because they technically are outpatients. So observation patients apply. So we think about, you know, who's taking care of those observation patients. Sometimes that may be, you know, the ED physicians doing it, or a lot of times it's our hospitalists um, or other specialists related to that. So what is the requirement is so you have to do the consultation and then whoever is doing the consultation, whoever's ordering that particular study has to communicate the results of that consultation to the imaging provider. So again, whether that's a freestanding center, whether that's a hospital, that has to get communicated and has to flow all the way through. So the facility itself, the radiologist, again, for those of you that might own equipment yourselves and doing your own interpretation, you still got to flow through that process for your organization with it. So why are they doing this? Um, besides the, the, the comments that we would normally hear is, you know, eventually they want to identify the outliers. So where this, uh, this started, if we go way back, remember we're talking about it got introduced in 2014. So before 2014, we were talking about, you know, the, the Affordable Care Act and we're talking about expansion of insurance. And one of the things that came up was they said, well, you know what, we should do 100% prior authorization for Medicare. And CMS said, oh, that sounds nice in theory, but we really don't have enough people to do that. They said that in so many words, right? So they recognized they really couldn't do 100% prior authorization because again, they just didn't have the staff to do it. They didn't want to pay to outsource it either. So they came along with another solution um, the imaging community did and said, hey, instead of doing 100% prior authorization, let's do this consultation of criteria and then identify who your outliers are. So CMS has said, we want to identify the top 5% of all providers, not just in a particular specialty, but all providers to be able to say, you know, okay, who should we put on prior authorization? So it's kind of out there. And even in the final rule, for 2022, they said, we'll figure that out in the future. Of course, they said it in much bigger uh, legalese with it, but basically said, we will provide information on outlier determination in future rulemaking. So they, they basically means they haven't figured that out yet. But so that's really kind of the stick out there, right? So there's certain things with a carrot, certain things with a stick. When we think about quality measures, you're going to get more money. That's a nice carrot. Here's a stick that says, hey, if you don't do this, eventually you're going to have to go through 100% prior authorization. Well, part of the challenge with this is when's that going to happen and how much of a stick is that, right? So here we are. We're talking about something now going into effect in 2023, but yet they'll have to collect at least two years worth of data. So probably the earliest we're looking at this would have to be 20. 
2025, probably 2026, 2020, that sounds a long way away, doesn't it? 2026 um, with that. And that's, you know, for a lot of people, that's not a big stick at that point. It's like, well, I'll figure that out as we get a little bit closer. Not saying not to do it, just telling you some of the arguments that we sometimes hear. So again, we started in 2014, protecting access to Medicare. Act. This was supposed to go into effect January 1 of 2017. Um, people started to recognize, though, this wasn't quite so easy. I mean, a lot of people said, well, it's, you know, it's just it's an IT issue. We just need to make a few changes, no big deal. And then once they got into it, especially on the hospital side, they said, well, wait a minute, this is a bigger deal than we thought. So they delayed it. 2016, 2017, 2018 final rules, which kept pushing it out and pushing it out. So in the 2018 final rule, they said, okay, we're going to have an implementation date of January 1, 2020 with that. And then they said they kept adding and calling it a testing year. So technically, the implementation date is still 2020. So if people tell you that, that it's already been implemented, technically it has. It's just the penalty phase when they're going to start tracking it or not paying people for certain things won't start until January 1, 2023 or the January 1st that follows the declared end of the public health emergency for COVID-19. Now, you could say, I can't imagine that the public health emergency would go into 2023, but here we are and we look at how many times the public health emergency has been extended and depending on you know the, the timing of everything, we may continue to see those extensions beyond where we are today. So it could go into January 1, 2024 if again, we see that PHE expanded uh, past January 1 of 2023. So that wasn't the final rule that just came out with that. So we could start testing January 1 of 2020. We could start communicating modifiers, communicating uh, HICS-PICS codes related to it. And Medicare said out of the gate, as long as the consultation occurred, they're going to uh, provide payment. Well, assuming medical necessity, you always got to throw that out there. But the requirement is, is that the technical component and the professional component of the furnishing provider of the imaging service are the ones that have to communicate this information on their claim form. So technical component, professional component, or global, depending on how you're billing, have to communicate that. So again, for those of you who are ordering providers, your responsibility is to give that information to the imaging center, to the hospital, to whomever you're sending your patients to. If you own equipment within your organization, you want an MR, you own a CT, a PET scan, whatever, falling into those categories, you have to not only do the consultation, but ensure that when the billing goes out the door for those services, that it includes those modifiers and it includes those uh, G codes when appropriate uh, related to that. So everything's always going to have a modifier. This is CM, this is Medicare only. Everything's always going to have a modifier, but it may not have a G code if we didn't have to do the consultation. If we don't put the G code on there or that modifier on there as appropriate, we will not get paid. Um, so that's an issue. So again, whether you're, whether you are performing uh, studies within your organization or sitting to a hospital, and you could say, well, gee, this isn't my problem. This is up to the hospital or the imaging center. But if you want them to take your patients, you're going to have to do this. This isn't something they can pick and choose to do it. And why would they do studies for you for free uh, related to that? So, you know, again, this is this is a government regulation. It's not something individuals came up with for it and, and work with your imaging centers and your hospitals for it. So what's the requirement? Well, again, the penalty phase, so meaning we won't get paid for facilities and radiologists or any of you that own equipment 
beginning January 1, 2023, if we don't have the modifiers at that CPT level to indicate adherence. So with the modifiers, there's always going to be a modifier for a Medicare patient for with that. G-code is only on the claim if we actually had to do the consultation. Remember, we talked about a couple of exceptions uh, related to that, and we'll go over those modifiers in just a second. So you got to think about operationally, how do we communicate that? How do you, if you're an imaging facility, you know, whether that's a hospital or a freestanding facility, how do you add that modifier and get it where it's a smooth process? And if you're an ordering provider and you're in that position, how do you provide this information in the easiest way possible? I mean, part of the goal of this, it, again, I get it. Nobody necessarily likes the process and, and principle with it. But if we have to do it, how do we do it to be as minimally disruptive as possible? One, we do not want to involve the patients in this. Patients, I would argue, should not even have to be aware that this is going on. It should be something behind the scenes um, that's going through from that standpoint. For our, um, you know, as we're, as we're communicating between the ordering provider and the imaging facility with it, how can we streamline that? How can we make it as easy as possible within the EHR and have everything interfaced as much as possible? So again, we don't have to physically touch things. Well, here's the modifiers that we're talking about. So MA modifier is, is the one that we use to communicate that a patient has a suspected or confirmed emergency medical condition. So those are the ones coming out of the emergency room, but it doesn't have to be. And that's an important clarification that CMS has given us as well. Um, let's say that you are a primary care um, provider and you have a patient that comes into your office and you're concerned that they have a pulmonary embolism based on how they presented and no, they didn't go to the ED, no, no, they didn't go, they just came to your office and you want to immediately get them over for a CT, that would meet a definition of an MA. Um, so again, there's things that come up that are, are suspected or confirmed medical emergency conditions that don't necessarily present themselves um, in the ED. So again, it's not limited to ED, but sometimes you'll hear that referred to as the ED modifier with it. The other side of that is they can't, they being the hospital cannot build it so that everything coming out of the ED gets that MA modifier. The hardship exceptions that we mentioned are B, C, and D. Uh, B is insufficient internet access. C is for problems with an electronic health record or a vendor issue. Uh, D would be extreme uncontrollable circumstances. I mean, there's all sorts of things that could fall into that bucket, right? I mean, we could have we could have the system going down. We could have a hurricane. We could have some different things. Um, one thing with hardship exceptions, if someone claims a hardship exception, it's really on that entity who's claiming it. It's not the responsibility of the imaging provider to actually validate date all of that. So as long as there's something in writing, somebody claiming a hardship, then that's what has to be defended and that's probably what will be audited from that standpoint. The next three relate to you're going to see a G-code on the claim for those. Those first four you wouldn't because we basically said there wasn't a requirement to do the consultation, but for the next three there is. So you're going to see a G-code on the claim with those. The first one, the ME, says it adhered, meaning you got a good score, that's the good one. MF said it does not adhere. Uh, with that. So it's either yes or no. And then the MG says the order doesn't have appropriate use criteria in the system. Now that can be a tricky one because depending on what you put in, you could have a situation where it didn't yield a result for it, but you have to think about did you really enter in as much detail as possible? I mean, I've seen situations where people will say, well, it didn't have any information in there. It wouldn't give me a score. 
And then you dig a little deeper and you say, well, well what did you put in? And you'll say, well, I said status. Well, okay, well, status what? Or follow up, follow up what? Um, or not really, if you take a patient who has a particular type of cancer, and let's say they have something that justifies, uh, you know, the thorax or the abdomen, but yet we're looking for brain mets, but we don't put the signs or symptoms of why we think there's brain mets. And so the brain, the brain study comes back as, as not, at, you know, having the information for it. So again, a lot of different reasons for it, but that one is in there and basically says, look, I tried, I consulted the appropriate use criteria, but it didn't give me a result for that. And then the last one says, we don't know, which is kind of a testing modifier in a lot of ways, right? So it says, we don't know if the ordering provider did it uh, for it, but we're kind of checking that box. We don't know what's going to happen with this modifier come January 1, 2023, because we know that it, they may keep it, but know that if we did that, we're not going to get paid if we submit it. So MH modifier may be fine now for testing things, but it is more of an issue um, in the future for that. So what do we know? Well, effective January 1, you could start reporting G codes at the claim level and modifiers to test it. And again, you know, I shouldn't just say radiologists. I would say any of you that own your own equipment, orthopedics, neurology, you know, oncology, cardiology, list goes on. If you're billing for that facility or technical component piece of it or, or professional component piece of it, you can start testing those pieces on there. Um, some key questions that come up with, well, what about can't the ordering uh, you know, can I have somebody else do this for me, right? Can I have somebody from the imaging center do it? Or can I just have, you know, somebody else do this? This isn't like prior authorization, and that's a whole nother discussion in itself. Um, the, the exception that exists is that referring providers or ordering providers can have their own clinical staff perform it at their direction. In other words, they are clinical staff that works for that ordering provider within that electronic medical record who's taking care of that patient, not just somebody they're telling to do it. Um, that's a compliance issue if we don't have staff doing that. The other thing is it has to be clinical staff, not registration staff, right? So it's got to be that person's, that ordering providers. It could be a nurse practitioner. It could be a nurse. It could be, you know, again, any clinical person who's helping to take care of that patient who's going to have that dialogue with the physician uh, to, to take care of that particular patient. They did explicitly talk about this in the 2022 uh, proposed rule for reinforcement with it. So some people were saying, we don't think it's clear enough. They wanna make it crystal clear who had the ability to actually do that consultation with it. So some of the other questions that come up, and, and this was actually a really good clarification that happened in the 2022 final rule was, will it be required if Medicare is secondary? And for a long time, CMS was holding very firm that yes, absolutely, that's Medicare paying, it had to be covered. And then they came back and they said, actually, no. We think we can make the justification that when Medicare is secondary, it is not required. So that's important for those you know, submitting for that. We don't have to worry about those crossover claims. The other reason that may be important is if you're on the ordering provider side and you're building your system as to which types of patients require consultation, some people are doing it for every patient, no matter who their payer is. Some are doing it just for Medicare. And if so, if you are doing it just for Medicare, then it is just Medicare primary. You don't have to worry about secondary. We said, does it apply to observation patients? And the short answer is yes, it does. Uh, just like we talked about a little bit earlier, uh, observation patients are scheduled outpatients, um, or not scheduled outpatients, but they're outpatient status uh, with that, and it is something that is covered for it. 
So what is going to happen to that modifier MH in 2022? So it will go away unless CMS gives us new guidance on how to address that. So that is something in 2023, there's actually a few things that we're looking for from Medicare and, and guidance on MH modifiers, one of them. We do expect that to come out in the proposed rule uh, with that proposed rule coming out, you know, end of end of June, beginning of July time period, final rule coming out, uh, you know, end of October, beginning of November time period uh, related to that. And then what are we going to do if the interpretation was performed in a non-applicable technical component setting? I mentioned critical access hospitals being one. There's a couple other exceptions out there as well. They've told us, they being CMS, have told us they're going to give us a new modifier um, with that. So they haven't given it to us yet. So they're going to have to give it to us in 2022 and let us know what those new modifiers um, are with it. It was interesting. I was looking at the HixPix codes for 2022 and was thinking maybe they might put the HixPix codes out there, um, you know, HixPix modifiers out there, but they didn't. So we're still waiting on that particular piece of information. Other things to think about, you know, I mentioned inpatients with it. Uh, one other thing that they clarified, CMS clarified in the final rule was if a patient converted um, from inpatient to outpatient status. So while they were there, if they converted from inpatient to outpatient, that you do not have to do the consultation for that. So that's good from a programming standpoint because sometimes that can create a little bit of challenge. You don't see that a whole lot with Medicare, um, but we do see it a lot with commercial payers now where commercial payers are actually dictating a patient status of inpatient versus outpatient for that. The other thing that comes up is what about pediatrics? So we know, you know, there are some I, some very few times that there are pediatric patients who are on Medicare that are disabled or other types of things with it. Um, that would be a requirement if, they, if Medicare is their primary insurance. Um, but other thing is a lot of the criteria that exists really doesn't take things into account for pediatrics, but that's an area of focus right now where people are starting to look more at not just people, but organizations about the criteria for pediatric patients with the goal of minimizing radiation exposure uh, from that standpoint. So again, even though we don't see a lot of it now, that is something we likely would see in the future. Some other things in the final rule for 2022, specifically for AEC, I mentioned already that the uh, future rulemaking is where they're going to figure out the methodology for the outliers and the fact that they also indicated that, you know, the furnishing provider could not do the consultation on behalf of the ordering provider or in place of the ordering provider. One of the other things that they addressed was what if the order needs to be changed. So we need to do additional studies, not on the order, um, you know, uh, those, kind of, those kind of scenarios, what do we do? And CMS reiterated the ordering guidelines that have actually been in place since 1997. So they've been in place for a while now. And the, the guidelines are around freestanding centers, around physician office and independent diagnostic testing facilities, where the orders are pretty strict in those particular settings. And they said that if you could not reach the ordering provider, they didn't have to do the consultation. But if you could reach them, they wanted a new consultation to be done. Um, so that's important to know uh, from that standpoint. So again, hospitals have a little bit of flexibility with there, but that's that's a whole nother and a whole nother discussion about the hospitals ordering guidelines and things like that. But basically, if you can be reached, they do want a reconsultation to be done or a new consultation to be done if we're needing to add on other studies uh, for that. So just something important to keep in mind with that. 
Some of the other exceptions that were listed out there was the issue of um, Maryland. And Mar Maryland has a different cost model. Maryland doesn't follow APCs. That's something out of the gate uh, related to that. And one of the things that they said is if interpretation of studies are being done at a Maryland hospital, that's an exception uh, for it. So a Maryland hospitals themselves are exempt. They do not need to follow it. So if any of you practice in, in Maryland and you're talking about services done at a hospital, they're exempt. Freestanding centers are not exempt because they're not paid under the different cost model for Maryland. They're still paid under the Medicare physician fee schedule. So that'd be an example that we just looked at of where an interpretation might be done at a, an exempted location with it. Uh, we talked about changing from outpatient status uh, on the in, from inpatient outpatient related to that. And one of the things that Medicare also said was, what should we do is if the situation happens where something isn't going to pass the claims process, should we reject it or should we deny it? Um, and everybody basically said, don't deny it because then we have to go through appeals and everything like that. So they said, all right, we'll reject those claims, but they've still got to work out what that process is. How are we going to know? Because we're going to need to have a very specific um, you know, remittance codes uh, for that particular piece of it. The other thing is, what about services that were ordered prior to that January 1, 2023, you know, date of it when the penalty kicks in? What about those? How are we going to handle it? And and CMS basically responded, said they're going to give us a modifier to use for it. They haven't given it to us yet. So we're going to expect to see at least a couple of modifiers that are coming out in 2022 to help and guide us in 2023 for that. So it was interesting when they talked about why, why did they do the delay, right? So CMS for a while now has been saying, we're ready, no problem, no issues. And then finally, they kind of came back and said, we're, we're not totally ready for that. Now, they published some data that said when they looked at 2020 claims data, they found that only 9 to 10% of all the claims were sufficient to be compliant. Well, they didn't dive into that a lot. And, and frankly, this is just my opinion going to lay it out there. It's, it's very misleading because is that 9 to 10% of claims that actually contained AUC data or is it the fact that of all claims that could have been submitted, only 9 to 10% had AUC information on it? So again, a little bit misleading. They're looking at it and saying, well, gee, we would have rejected 90 to 91% of all the claims. Well, if we're in a testing period and you didn't have to put modifiers and G codes on there, why would you have rejected those? So again, I think it's a little bit uh, sounds a little bit worse than it is, but this is what they put in the proposed rule anyway. Uh, they also admitted they've got some issues with having multiple ordering providers and multiple studies on the same claim form. That's an issue for hospitals, and especially more, you think, well, how often would it happen? It happens more times than you think. If you've got a patient that lives, let's say, out in a, in a non-urban area, and they're going into to the city to get all their imaging, and they're bringing you know, multiple imaging studies to get done on the same day, it could happen definitely could happen if they're having different, you know, chronic diseases being evaluated and those kind of things. So it's one of those scenarios that you don't think about as much until you really start looking at different places within the uh, country and where that could potentially occur. Um, they also, again, uh, made it very clear that a radiologist does not have to submit AUC information if they did the study at the critical access hospital. So there was a lot of good clarifying information in the proposed and, and final 2022 rules uh, around that, which is really good. So what do we do with all that, right? So here's all the rules. We've talked about what's changed. 
And now we say, it's almost kind of the so what, right? What do, what do we do about this? Well, again, depends on your perspective. If you're an ordering provider, you need to think about how do you make this as smooth of a process for your patients, for your staff, for yourself, um, and that particular piece. Or if you're on the side where you're performing the studies, you've got to think about from your own perspective, how am I going to get the data in the easiest way possible? And how do I let it flow through? I would argue that this is a process issue and that ideally we build processes that nobody really has to touch. We don't want, we don't want somebody physically having to go put those modifiers on a claim form or physically having to type in the G code. We want to build interfaces and we want to build ways to make it as easy as possible from that standpoint. So, you know, here's just an example uh, of an infographic on the screen there where, you know, really kind of looking out to saying, okay, how do things flow within my organization? You know, as we think about it from a hospital standpoint, uh, I may be getting patients from the emergency department, I might get them from observation, I might have freestanding centers, maybe using the same EHR that we're using. Uh, we've got community providers, employed providers, uh, even within employed providers, we might be using different types of um, electronic health records from that standpoint. So there's all these different scenarios. And again, you may fall into one of those buckets where you're an employed provider, let's say you're in a cardiology practice, you could think about, okay, well, is my system my system, separate and distinct from the healthcare system? Is it my system, but yet I have a, a tunnel into the hospital system? I have access to their Epic or access to their Cerner, whatever they're using, or am I using the hospital system? You gotta think about from a system standpoint, how do all these things connect? And unfortunately, nothing is ever easy, right? It'd be great to be able to pick up the phone, call somebody in IT and say, you know, gee, this is what I want to do. Can you flip a switch? Because they're going to say, no, nope, we got to build in the programming on it. And especially from a provider standpoint, a lot of times the, hot, the physician side tends to get a little bit lower on the list. So the sooner the better, which is why I'm, I'm raising that flag now to say, yes, we may be talking about 2023 at this point, but that means live and tested and clear and straightforward and all those things taken care of by that implementation date. Um, a lot of places have already been doing a lot of testing to this point. And if you haven't, uh, you know, put it on the list. Do it when you're not as stressed because, again, we know things only continue to get bigger um, with it. So here's some of the key areas that people have to think about. So uh, we mentioned ER as an example. So if you are, again, depending on your perspective, for some of you, you may say, well, I don't do anything with the ER. That's all right. Just bear with me. For those of you that do, maybe you're coming from the ER physician's perspective, or you might be coming from the hospital's perspective or the radiologist's perspective. But figuring out how does the facility determine when, when it's required versus when is it not applicable um, with it. It's not as straightforward as, well, it's crystal clear. Everybody has to do it this way. Um, there's some areas that are open for interpretation. We do know you can't just say that it doesn't apply to everybody because that's not true. Um, but you've got to think about how does it impact that workflow and how can we build it so that it, it's as easy as it can be, given, again, the fact that nobody really likes the system uh, from that standpoint. So we've got to think about how do we impact their workflow and how do we deal with it as it relates to observation patients. So what are the options out there? Well, some places require it for all patients. They don't care if it's an emergency, not an emergency. They make every ordering provider put it in. Um, even if they're doing a stroke protocol, they make them go and they put it in with that. Some places do what we call acuity suppression, where, you know, acuity gets defined, usually on the front end uh, by whoever's doing triage with it. 
and you could define it's not perfect, but it is a, a pretty standard system where you can build through and say, okay, well, if something's a zero acuity, that means we're taking that patient straight back. Um, uh, you know, one or two is still a high acuity. You can build it in to say, okay, when the patient's been assigned this particular acuity level, we're going to bypass the consultation. In other words, when the physician is putting in orders, it's not even going to pop up. Uh, with it. It's just going to suppress it. They're not even going to see it. So they're only going to see it for levels three through five. And maybe we tweak that after a while, and maybe we suppress it for zero through three. So we're constantly looking at the data to see what are those studies being ordered that are acuity level three, uh, and, and is it is it valid and is it appropriate? And there might be some other mechanism. Again, there's not one right answer to this, uh, but it is something that does need to be evaluated uh, from that standpoint. Other things to think about, you know, how how do we deal with that? Again, whether we're ordering provider or we are uh, from the facility or the radiologist side, how's that going to be addressed? If you didn't do the consultation, you can go back and do it. We're talking scheduled outpatient at this point. Um, again, we want to be careful that we're not asking for a, a facility to do free exams. That's not really appropriate for a lot of reasons related to it. But what kind of visibility you're going to have? Maybe you're the head of a practice and there's 10 physicians and, or providers in your group, but but one of your providers is refusing to provide information or isn't doing it. And so now your group is kind of considered to be a little challenging. What are you doing about that? How are you discussing that within your own organization? Uh, again, this isn't whether choosing to adhere to it or choosing to follow it because we like it or don't like it, it is what it is, right? I mean, I, I know we all hate that phrase, but it's out there. We have to abide by it. So we just need to do it and we need to do it. And if there's something that's difficult or there's not data in the system that we need, let's address that problem. We can't just bypass it and say that we're not going to do it. Um, also think about who's going to do education. I mean, it's fine to send out, you know, a, a note. Here's a, here's a letter that says this is coming. We're going to see a lot of that, especially come next October, October 2022. But, you know, people have questions. Are you going to provide education? I, I do know groups that are going to be providing education to their ordering providers to so let them know what this is, why it's doing it, how they're going to be of assistance in the process. And, I mean, it is fair to ask at the imaging center of the hospital that you send your patients to, um, you know, how are you going to make this as easy as possible? Again, I think that's a fair question. So other things, when we look at some implementation, you know, metric visibility is always good. Having metrics for everybody to see, not necessarily that you want to let everybody see your scores for your practice, but you'd want to see it for your own practice uh, related to that. So we do want to see our scores and they have it. If you're using their mechanism, they definitely have the scores. If it's a mechanism within your own system, you should be able to see your own scores and see your own results for that. Um, I would definitely, you know, this is change management and action, right? So this is, again, not something everybody's going to be thrilled about. Nobody really wants to do it. So let's just get it out there. All right, let's talk about what we like about the system, don't like about the system. What can we fix? What can we not fix? Let's just embrace it. Let's deal with it. And let's do what we can, right, to make it as easy as possible. Let's streamline where we can. Let's ask those questions of our vendors. Let's see what they can do to partner with us. I mean, change happens in systems because providers appropriately and clinicians appropriately push back and say, can't we make this easier? We're going to see changes, especially after the implementation where they make things better. Again, we see artificial intelligence already being built in to some of these systems to assist in the process, makes it faster. It doesn't take away the responsibility, but it makes it faster. And, and education before, during, and after implementation is, and it's going to be ongoing because the content itself 
or the AUC criteria is always going to continue to be updated clinically as things continue to advance. So think about if you've got manual orders, again, whether you are the one writing manual orders, receiving manual orders, how many do you really have? I mean, studies have shown, industry studies have shown that it is not uncommon for organizations to still have 25 to 40% manual orders. Doesn't mean they're not scanned in, doesn't mean they don't get indexed, but they start off as a manual order. So how can we streamline this? How can we take, you know, it, you think about what we've gone through with the public health emergency with COVID. It's been incredibly disruptive in a lot of ways, but you can focus on the negative or you can also say, well, there's a lot of, there's some, we've, we've turned some very negative things into some very positive things, right? So look at telehealth. I'm gonna use that as a great example in healthcare. Telehealth advanced 15 years in one year. Um, so you think about if we had said, and we tried to convince the government to pay for telehealth services for patients, especially to pay for mental health telehealth services for patients, they would have dug their heels in and said, no, 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 we're not gonna do it. Now they are, right? And a lot of that stuff is not going to go backwards. So use disruption as a way to make improvements from a process standpoint. So how can we streamline it? And then what is our risk, right? There's risk with everything. You, you care about risk, which is why you're listening to this session, which is why you count on first healthcare compliance to be there to let you know what your risks are, right? So you want to do the right thing. You want to know what your risks are so that you can mitigate them and address them so you don't have any particular issues with it. So again, with manual orders, you can look at implementing electronic options. Maybe the time is now for EFACs or interfaces. Identify where you have gaps uh, with that and we can streamline. I mean, a, a lot of places are paperless, but a lot of places still aren't. Um, with that. And, and, you know, again, think about other considerations. How do we ensure that we don't disrupt our patients, right? I mean, this is not something, our patients are stressed out enough. They don't need to be stressed out about this too. And think about who are the gatekeepers to in the organizations? How can we ensure that they don't stress our patients out? Um, so a lot of different questions and things to think about. When you go to do implementation testing, again, Whichever side you're on, you're on the ordering side, you're on the receiving side, you still want to test, you got to look to make sure nobody's getting denials. You, you want your partners to get paid um, with that. That's important, right? I mean, hopefully you have partnered with imaging centers and hospitals that you have, you're very happy with the quality of the services that they're providing. So again, we want to be good partners as we work through this process. Um, if you're dealing with ED stuff, that those are handled correctly. We don't want anything like this tying up patient care. Um, there's a lot of testing that can happen. If we want to make this as smooth as possible from a systems perspective, there's testing scripts and testing scenarios and all the different pieces of it that IT can wonderfully draft and do and everything else. And we do want to make sure that that's accurate. But one thing I'll point out though, it's really important when that, we talked about that appropriate use content by those provider-led entities, that gets updated all the time. Just because it gets updated doesn't mean those updates make their way into the mechanism itself. That's a very, very, very important point. So when your physicians say, well, there's not enough data in there for that particular exam, maybe they're right. Maybe maybe they're not being impatient. Maybe they're right and you go look and it was uh, they're ordering a CT of the lumbar spine and there was a legitimate reason and it wasn't in there. They're constantly updating their content. So pushing back on the vendors to make sure the updated content is there is important. Important. The other thing is, you remember that list of all those organizations, right? Some mechanisms will just go to one PLE content. And all of those should be able to handle multiple PLEs. So maybe my cardiologist 
want the American College of Cardiology, maybe my my oncologist want the National Comprehensive you know, Care Network, that's okay, I would argue. You should be able to put in the content that they want. So if again, if you're on the ordering side, get the content you want that you think aligns with your practice, not just something overall that somebody says, well, this is what we're doing because this is the easiest um, with that particular piece. So other things when we talk about some of the potential project metrics with things, you know, having that utilization by provider, by practice, uh, before and after is possible, looking at those scores by providers, finding out when we don't have a score. Um, due to lack of data in there becomes important. We're going to need to monitor our denials um, for that piece of it. Again, we don't have a separate uh, EOB code at this point, so we're going that's going to need to be something that Medicare creates as well to give us that information. Um, anytime we have missing AUC information, especially as, as we're talking about once we're starting to implement that towards the end of 2022, if we've got an ordering provider and, you know, hopefully you don't fall into that category that doesn't want to do it, you don't want a situations where your patient can't get services against scheduled outpatient services. And then segmenting by modality where appropriate, it's always nice to be able to look at it and see from that standpoint. This is just an example. This is from CareSelect. Again, I'm, I'm going to be vendor neutral, but this is one that's, that's easily available for that to be able to look at the types of scores. So green is good, yellow is maybe, red is no. So when we talked about that appropriate or not appropriate, you know, we put the green and the yellow into appropriate, we put the red into not appropriate, and then we see those no score pops up. And, and I've seen and heard of other organizations who actually can even add another level of like blue that says, okay, this wasn't actually in the system for that. So you can, again, break it down by modality uh, related to it, get your number of orders with it, that was ED, you could break it down for other areas. I mean, your number of not appropriate really should be small, but even if they're not appropriate, why, right? Let's get into finding out what is it specifically about it that was not appropriate? What was the reason for the exam where that was not technically appropriate for it? Um, you know, you can graph it all sorts of different ways. You can look at it over a particular time period. Um, you know, we can look at some different, uh, you know, scores from that standpoint. The other thing that's kind of nice is to slice and dice it a little bit more. And this is where, this is not a standard report. This is one where I've kind of massaged some things, but being able to look at it and, and you really get into that whole issue of free text versus drop-down menus. You know, drop-down menus have their place. The negative of drop-down menus is you don't always have um, the options of what you're looking for. But, you know, here's an example where they were ordering an MRI of the, of the right knee with, with and without contrast, and all it talked about was that was surveillance. Well, Medicare is going to look at that, or even just appropriate use criteria, and going to say, okay, why? It's not covered. Um, with it? Or, you know, what other specifically are we looking at uh, for some of these ones? And surveillance is a good example where they don't like surveillance um, as, as a covered service in oncology from that standpoint. So sometimes you got to get a little bit more uh, detailed, just like with suspected. No rule out, suspected looks like might be. We need signs or symptoms, okay? If they think there's soft, soft tissue sarcoma, why? Give me the sign or symptom, not what you think it might be from that standpoint. So specifically where the cancer is, specifically what the signs or symptoms are, become really important uh, when you look at, at that particular piece uh, for that. So a lot of different ways you can slice and dice the data. A lot of things are dependent, again, on your perspective, but I would say use this extra year 
as an opportunity to test more, look at things, uh, and make sure that when we do have to turn it on into that penalty phase, that things are going to go smoothly from that standpoint. So thank you for attending the session today and getting into the whirlwind tour associated with that. And we'll stop here at the end, uh, Catherine, to see if we had any questions. Thank you so much, Melody. We do have a few questions. And um, so that was a wonderful presentation. Um, the first question that we do have is, um, what is the probability that Congress will intervene and cancel the whole program, just cancel the program? That's a good question. I, at least for this coming year, we don't think that'll happen. I think if anything, we're hearing people might want to push. They are trying to say that there's already quality programs in place with micro, MIPS and MACRA that where the ordering providers get credit for the fact that they're doing appropriate use criteria consultation and that that should be sufficient. That I think is the thing that may gain legs on it more than just having Congress cancel it. We've seen it ebb and flow right now. It doesn't have a lot of traction. But, you know, I think we've all seen just as how Washington works, anything is possible. So I'm definitely not going to bet on that one way or the other, though I, I would lean towards it. I do think it is going to ultimately happen. Okay, all right. Um, okay, we have another question. Um, do you think that ED orders will ever be excluded? It's a good question because you know, when you talk about the whole issue of putting a, a provider on 100% prior authorization based on bad, bad orders, that doesn't make any sense for ED, right? I mean, you're not ever going to put an ED physician on prior authorization. That's just that that's incongruent. It doesn't make any sense. So if you're not ever going to do that, what right. is the stick for the ED physician? So I think that may be some place that they may find a way to modify it. I don't know how they would do that since, again, we're back to it being the law. Um, but but hopefully CMS could find a way to work with Congress to make that change because, I mean, you do want to make sure exams are correct when they're ordered. And I get it. There's been a lot of abuse, even though people don't want to hear that. There is abuse in, in EDs. There really is for a lot of different reasons. Not every ED, not every physician in any form or fashion. But finding something that's meaningful, I think, is going to be really important. So I think I think we'd all like to see them do something with the ED. Just what exactly that's going to be, I, I think, will be interesting once it does get rolled out. Okay. All right. That's that. Those are really good points. Um, okay. Uh, what is what would be one point one piece of advice that you would give to both ordering providers and interpreting providers? I think for ordering providers it would be not to underestimate that it is going to take some some work to make sure that it's a smooth process within your own electronic medical records and that it's a smooth process to pass that data to the imaging center to the hospital or to whomever you use for orders so don't assume that's going to be easy or that there's going to be somebody immediately available to help you work through the issues that happen um, and then the the other thing is um, with the with the radiologists themselves is making sure that they're getting the information from the hospital. Um, that's the key piece and making sure that they're aware of what the issues are with it. Okay, perfect. Well, I wanted to thank you so much, Melody. Um, did you have any other words of advice or anything you wanted to leave with us today? 
Um, I think the biggest thing is, again, it's just it's change management. It's that whole thing of you need to give people time to adapt to the change. Don't wait to the last minute of it. And I think kind of that, you know, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming and making it a slow implementation and letting people be aware of it. The sooner the better is is good instead of waiting the fourth quarter and all of a sudden it becoming this huge issue at the last minute. Okay, well, thank you for helping um, get the word out. Very much appreciate that to our listeners. Absolutely, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. And um, listeners, please use the contact information on um, that you'll find in within the slides um, and uh, for Melody. And then you can also send us questions and we'll forward them on to Melody as well. Please remember your PACOM and PMI certificate will be emailed to you from within two days following the broadcast. There's no need to request it. You can register for future webinars or request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at firsthcc.com or call us at 888-543-4778. And thank you for joining us.